Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Hello, and welcome to today's forum on Native American experiences with discrimination. I'm Joe Neal. I'll be your moderator today. The NPR, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health have done a poll on Americans' experience with discrimination, and we want to share with you today the results with uh, Native Americans. Um, in the poll, we surveyed more than 3,400 people uh, of whom about 10% were native, identified themselves as Native Americans. If we could bring the first slide up, please, you can see the other groups that we've uh, analyzed and issued reports on so far. Uh, the, um, today, as I said, we'll look at Native Americans. Uh, I expect a lively discussion today, and I want to get started with introductions. Um, Robert Blinden, on my immediate right, is Professor of Health Policy and Political Analysis at the Harvard Chan School and the Harvard Kennedy School. Stephanie Freiberg is next to him. Stephanie is Associate Professor for American Indian Studies and Psychology at the University of Washington. Next to her is Yvette Rubidoux. Yvette is Director of the Policy Research Center at the National Congress of American Indians and former Director of the Indian Health Service. She's also a graduate of the Harvard Public Health School. And uh, uh, to her right is Michael Painter. Michael is Senior Program Officer at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and former Chief of Medical Staff at the Seattle Indian Health Board. As I said, the event today is presented as a collaboration between Robert, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation uh, and NPR and the Harvard Chan School. We're streaming this live on the websites of NPR and the Harvard Forum. Uh, we're also streaming live on Facebook. Uh, the program will include a brief Q&A and you're welcome to submit your questions to um, the forum at hsph.harvard.edu. That's the forum at hsph.harvard.edu. And you can also participate on a live, in a live chat, chat that's now happening on the forum website. Well, let's start with the poll and the results um, and go over some of the highlights. Uh, Bob, you directed the poll. Well, start us off. Uh, so quickly, Bob Lennon, just a, a background here. There are numbers of polls that have actually been done in this country and shows a deep division about the level of discrimination that minority communities face, with many Americans think it's not very high and it's just uh, unusual circumstances, and others very deeply. And uh, so this effort is an effort to allow people to speak for themselves. And for the Native American community, this is very important. I, I am in the polling world. Hundreds of polls are done over the last 10 years. There is no mention 
of the views and experience of Native Americans. This is one of the few. Uh, and the way it was structured, and I'm sure some of you identify some problems, we wanted to be able to uh, allow different groups to talk about similar experiences with schools and jobs and living and police and courts. And so the uh, questions are very similar across groups, but the groups are not themselves very similar. So there are, are some uh, uh, problems. So we've gotten a number of emails, and just uh, too quickly, uh, in, in this survey, who is a an, an Native American? And so the survey asked people about uh, their uh, race, and if they said, I identify with multiple races, you were asked uh, whether or not uh, what was your predominant way you identify yourself. And if they said, and for the record, the census uses American Indian or Alaskan Native, and that's what we used here. Though the form is about Native Americans, the census swears they get a better and more reliable in-person response when they use those terms. Every question that involved discrimination also said, because you're an American Indian or Alaskan Native. So it would be pretty tough to take this question after question and not identify. Uh, uh, with the group. So uh, we really think that uh, they are. And then across the groups, we asked various people, if you lived in communities who were predominantly of your group, we looked at the problems one way or the other. This may have not been ideal here, but uh, we came up with 31% of people in the sample. So most did not live in a, in a majority uh, area. 62% uh, of those said they lived on a tribal land or, or a reservation. So the bulk of our answers are people who don't live in majority uh, areas at all, but the differences were so large, even though the majority do not live in the majority side, uh, we showed some of that. So if we can have just the first of the PowerPoints, and the thing that's really powerful about this, most polls ask you about what you think is going on in America with your group. This is about your own life. Uh, we're not asking you about, about your experiences. experiences right, right, your own experiences, your own life. So a third of uh, the Native Americans said that they felt they had been discriminated against because they're a Native American uh, in terms of their employment. Uh, and 29%, uh, and this issue is all over the press every day, really feel that they have been discriminated against in their dealings with police. Uh, all over, all over the press, in terms of all the groups that we yes. surveyed, because yes. we surveyed, yes. it, it was a random sample of all Americans. And so, on that question, and this is where the real dispute is: there are people in the majority who say these are isolated incidents, and it's not a pattern in people's lives. Uh, we found with a lot of people, this is a pattern in their lives. There are experiences that go on uh, uh, and on. Uh, uh, next. Uh, so, uh, the most imp important uh, side uh, is the, the red bars is the total about being uh, uh, experienced institutional discrimination uh, because of being a Native American. And, but the larger black bars are people who live in predominantly uh, Native American areas. But that does that mean, as you can see, that the majority don't have it, urban or otherwise. It's just that people who live in concentrated areas appear to over and over report other problems in a, a higher concentrated area. 
When you say overreport, you don't mean you mean they're just reporting yes, more frequently. Yes, their numbers are much larger. Right. Uh, if they live in this, and we asked each of the communities uh, uh, about their experiences in a predominant area and others, and the answers are not always the same. Uh, many people who don't live in majority, whatever their areas, actually report more discrimination. Uh, than when they live in communities that are predominantly their own. So it actually varies across America by group. Next PowerPoint. Uh, so uh, this is uh, 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 critical because of the discussions, again, about uh, police and courts. The substantial number of Native Americans who feel they are a family member have been treated unfairly by the police and courts. So these are very, very large numbers, and it's one of the few surveys that allows people to speak about their own life experience. So we're not talking about what was in the newspaper, we're talking about your own life experience. Uh, last one. Uh, and so uh, we asked people about their own communities in their views what was better or worse, and uh, so, in terms of uh, Native Americans, uh, public transportation uh, is a major issue. Employment, uh, quality of available physicians or healthcare services, housing, and uh, to those from the Native American community, the drinking water issues are very, very powerful. Uh, uh, through our surveys. So people see, and we're asking them, just compare the community you live in to others. Uh, they feel that they're worse in these areas. So uh, this is a takeaway, but if you looked at it, what you see is that from people's own life experiences, they have a lot of negative experiences. We have slurs, we have insults, everything else. Things that are very, very powerful, and they are large enough that they are a pattern. They're not a small number of people who have an individual experience. And in that, we are very pleased that we can take voices of people's lives and make them seen more widely, which was the purpose of the poll. And that's what we've been trying to do in our series on NPR. Um, we're calling it you, uh, you, Me, and Them, Experiencing Discrimination in America. There are a lot of stories on our website, including five or six uh, just focused on the Native American experience, including on some of the issues that were on that last slide, drinking water, interacting with the police, and uh, in the court system. And so we're going to be talking more about that today in today's discussion. But I want to turn to Stephanie now. Stephanie, you're a psychologist. What's the impact of all this discrimination on, on Native Americans' mental health? Yes, thank you. So. First of all, I'm a social psychologist, social um, which means I'm particularly interested in how situations influence people's everyday lives. There are several big issues with reading the report that I want to bring up. So number one is I want to give a shout out to the data collection. Often Native people are omitted from research because there's small numbers. Um, and researchers often justify the omission because it feels statistically um, you know, difficult to look at that data, but that has real consequences for Native people in this country. To not be part of the discussion shapes then how our groups are talked about, how issues in Indian country are discussed, whether, you know, rural or urban. These issues come up and people assume it must not be true because there's no evidence to back it up. And so this is really important and this opportunity to create some conversation about the experience of contemporary Native people is really important. 
So from a psychological perspective, um, one of the interesting pieces for me in reading the report is that much of the data is similar to a recent report from st on stress in America um, that was put out by the, by the American Psychological Association. And we find many of the same kinds of issues that come up. Um, discrimination impacts how Native people feel about themselves, how they feel about their community, their sense of belonging, achievement aspirations, as well as general and overall stress, which can lead to all kinds of health disparities. Um, another issue, too, is that it shapes people's everyday experience. And I want to give three quick examples here. So if we think about a Native child who's existing in the world, driving down the street, sees a homeless Native person, sees people in their community struggling, when we're not having this conversation, that child can only think that there is something wrong mm -hmm. with their people. But when we're honest about history and what's really happened to Native people, when we're talking about discrimination as one feature of, of Native people's everyday life, that child has a different story. They understand that we've overcome many barriers, that we're resilient and strong, but that some people are still struggling. And so those are very different realities for how Native children and Native people in general get to understand what it means to be a contemporary Native person. Um, another issue is that what, what the omission of discrimination does is it's also the modern form of discrimination against Native people is that we're just omitted as contemporary people. And so this piece has huge ramifications, not just because of the discrimination we face, but also because our contributions to society become overlooked. So it's not just the negative that's missing, it's also the positive. And it's really important that Native people be seen for what we really are doing. Many Native tribes are contributing in a variety of ways to um, economic issues, um, whether it be um, environmental issues. Many tribes are leveraging change in a variety of ways, and so too are um, native, you know, urban na native community centers. Um, and we don't see it because we're really not talking about contemporary native people. And so we see it just come out in so many powerful ways that this, this is a really important discussion to have, and I'm, I'm grateful to be here today. And that's certainly one of the reasons that we wanted to undertake it, both at NPR and the Foundation and Harvard, was to elevate these issues and bring it into the national conversation right. more. Um, Yvette, um, I'd like to welcome you and um, have you talk about a little bit about your new role at the National Council of, on the American Indians and uh, how, they're how you're tackling discrimination in this new role. Well, thank you, and very glad to be here, and thank you again also for more data on American Indians and Alaska Natives. Um, so much better than not seeing any data at all, and great for a conversation and discussion about it. Uh, well, I am with the National Congress of American Indians, or NCAI as it's called. It's the oldest, largest, and most representative organization that represents the broad interests of American Indian and Alaska Native tribes. I'm the director of the Policy Research Center, so we help get data for tribes to make policy decisions and to advocate for their communities. Um, the National Congress of American Indians works with the Congress and the administration and other stakeholders to advance the priorities of its members, and it's an organization 
that develops those priorities by consensus. And so um, those priorities are very important work. And uh, there have been a lot of gains in uh, the last couple of decades for tribes. Tribes are expressing their sovereignty in a lot of different ways and building strong tribal programs. But they, we all do this work in the context of discrimination. It is, for many people, a daily event. Um, it is experienced by our members uh, individually, experienced as a group by tribes, and experienced as a population. And uh, really, in policy work, I noticed there was a question about whether it's perceived um, individually or in policy. And in policy, it's there. It's there everywhere. Um, just think about the last couple of weeks that the National Congress of American Indian has had around this topic. Um, on Thanksgiving, the Washington NFL team with a name that starts with R that the dictionary says is a racial slur, that team was scheduled to play on Thanksgiving of all days. And so the National Congress of American Indians has a campaign called Change the Mascot to help sports teams think about um, the, the names and the symbols that they use that may be harmful and may be causing pain in our youth and causing pain for American Indians and Alaska Natives. Um, what else happened? We had a, a wonderful opportunity to honor our code talkers. Um, they are heroes to us in American Indian and Alaska Native um, communities. And yet, during that ceremony, the name of an American Indian woman, valued by her own tribe and by many people, was disrespected and, and mentioned in an inappropriate and political way. And that was another opportunity where, um, you know, there was so much disappointment that the whole purpose of the ceremony was to honor our heroes, the code talkers. Um, what else is happening that, that we know about recently? The Department of Interior drastically reduce the size of national monuments that are considered sacred by American Indians and Alaska Natives. And despite the protests of the tribes, this action was still taken. And so that's another thing that's another uh, form of unfairness. If discrimination is unfairness based on race, unfairness based on your status, um, these actions really feel unfair to American Indians in a very personal way because they relate to our sacred places, they relate to our beliefs. Um, looking at even policies, simple policies like tax reform. In the tax reform bill, the priorities of the tribes were, were not fairly considered and we're hoping that the conferees will now consider them, um, but they weren't considered as well. Um, thinking about um, Stereotyping. I mean, our tribal leaders are so great. They go to Congress. They advocate for our priorities. Um, they meet with congressional staff. They meet with um, congressional leaders. But they spend a lot of time educating people to help them understand that some of their beliefs might be stereotypes that are not true, um, that don't represent the rich diversity of American Indians and Alaska Natives. Um, I have personal uh, instances of when I've met with various poly policymakers and they've said things that were offensive to me. I've sat in, in the room with highest leaders of the government and heard phrases that to me were, oh, not again, they're saying those things again. They don't even realize that it can be harmful. Um, so I think that despite all of 
these experiences that American Indians and Alaska Natives have, either individually or in the policy arena, American Indians and Alaska Natives are very resilient and understand what is important. And what's important for NCAI is there are people depending on us each and every day to fight for them in the halls of Congress um, with the administration and uh, to work with tribes to make sure that their priorities get taken care of. And so um, this data is very helpful because it raises the, the truth that American Indians and Alaska Natives face discrimination very frequently and the potential harmful impact it can have, but also how resilient we can be because we really are focused on doing the best we can to make uh, improve the well-being of our people. Thank you. I would just uh, like to remind people that there's uh, on the forum website right now, there's a chat going on. Uh, we've raised a lot of issues here that have many different sides and many different opinions, so I would invite you to share your opinions with us on that website. Uh, I'd like to turn now to Michael Painter. Um, he is with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, as I said. One of the things that can counter, um, help counter discrimination against Native Americans um, are, is the culture itself. So can you talk to us a little, little bit about uh, of course, over over the years, the culture has been eradicated in many places, very active uh, um, effort to do that uh, over hundreds of years in this country. Uh, but there are many efforts now to bring back the culture and help use that as a, a counter against discrimination. Uh, tell us more about what you're doing. Sure. It's interesting, Joe, this word culture. So I'm from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and I'm not sure if everybody knows us, but we're the, the largest philanthropy in the United States devoted to improving health of Americans. And we do our work by working with leaders like the folks on this panel and all of you guys and um, all across the United States, helping build a healthy future. And we call that future, and this is where the culture word comes in, a culture of health. And we think of a culture of health, and we tend to capitalize culture and health when we talk about it uh, that way. Uh, uh, we think of it as a time and a place, hopefully in the not too distant future, but we're not there yet, obviously, where everyone, and the emphasis is on everyone, has hope and then lots and lots of opportunity to be as healthy as they can be. And so everything we invest in, everything we do, projects like this, everything is sort of pitched toward, toward that, that vision of a healthy future. But that sort of begs a question because the, that capital C culture, underneath that, there are all kinds of things that go into that. So healthcare is critically important, obviously, but where we live, work, and play, um, all those things are important. But there's also this other notion about what we, we like to call small c, um, lowercase culture, that as human beings, we all have our own culture that we use to navigate our lives, to understand our environment, to understand health and wellness. And, um, and whether we realize it or not. And so at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, I, I've been, a number of us have been fortunate enough, uh, and we haven't, we haven't done enough, and, uh, but we have done some things. And so that means we get to travel in Indian country some. And I'm always struck when I, when I land in a, in, a, in a discussion, maybe we have a discussion about that culture of health notion. What does that mean in this community of tribal members? And as we do in many other settings as well. And I'm always struck by how that this sort of eloquence, I guess I'd say, or ease you know, you don't want to generalize in, in either way, but it seems like more often than not, when I'm, in an, when I'm in Indian country, that eloquence and ease about talking about culture and place and sense of connection to the place and nature is really striking and really powerful, um, it seems to me. And, and you sort of look at that, though, in the face of genocide and historic trauma and 
explicit discrimination like we've been talking about or implicit um, uh, systemic uh, discrimination, all those things that dramatically affect your health. But there are all these things like like Vet was saying that for some some way, over these th thousands, hundreds of years in the United States history and thousands of years they've been, uh, the uh, uh, indigenous people in North America have lived here, they've created a set of wisdom and connection and sense of culture that is really, really important. Unfortunately, and the, the history of our country has, as folks have mentioned, has caused a stripping in some ways, or, or many people have, 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 in Indian country, I think, have too often left behind that culture. And we've, we at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, another project we've done is sort of go across the United States looking for folks in all walks, including in Indian country, um, where people have either retained their culture or starting to fan the flames of that culture and use it again um, to regain their health and their sense of being human. Um, and, and I think we have, have a, a clip, clip of, yeah, uh, maybe. Of someone, uh, of a, a man this is named a Anthony. Anthony, yeah. Mm -hmm. right. Can we play that clip? The bird songs come from our oral history of our creation. The people, they were lost. So they began this massive march searching for their home. We came to the Mount San Jacinto Mountains here. They could feel that their home was on the other side. They prayed to their God, they wailed, they cried out, and he imparted to them the bird songs. Generations ago, my great-great-great-grandparents were here. The Abuakalite translated is the hot water people. We live in the desert, right? So water is life. Through legends, that's where our people came from, was, was those waters. We were flourishing and then settlers come through and the missionaries and being pushed off our lands. Our people were struggling. You get up to the 50s and that's when our people felt in order for us to survive, we had to, in a sense, ditch our culture and traditions and customs and assimilate into the, the white ways. The members at that time, when they had their children, um, they wouldn't speak the language to them, they wouldn't share the, the cultures, traditions, customs. Our world was changing, and for us to survive, that's what we had to do. There's this new resurgence, especially the younger ones. They want to know more. They want to know more about their language and culture. You can see that they, they're culturally, they're becoming stronger. We take pride in that our tribe is so strong. We own this land, that our sovereignty has been maintained and it continues to be strengthened. I think the source of the, the mental health is knowing who you are culturally, and, and I think when our members know that. I think that just makes them more confident, less liable to drink, do drugs. You have a higher self-esteem. You're, you're going to exercise, watch what you eat. So we do have a, a cultural preservation committee. They have language classes, traditional food, pottery classes. They have bird singing classes. The tribe is allowing that culture to come back. We start at the same place we left in the beginning. People searching and longing for a home. This giant mountain was too big to, to cross over. And as they sang the bird songs, 
miraculously they were changed into birds and they flew over. So we became human again. That's what the bird songs mean to us. It helped us find our home. Thanks, Michael, for providing that clip. Um, I think it, it tells a, a, a story about things. I hope uh, about things that I hope are happening more and more across the country. Uh, we're reaching the second part of our discussion now, where we are going to open up the, the conversation. We've heard from each of our panelists, uh, and I'd like to, to raise some of the issues, both that were in the poll and also some whatever issues that panelists may want to raise. Uh, first, I'd like to start with healthcare being a health editor at NPR um, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation being heavily involved in healthcare, let's talk about the healthcare results that we found in this poll. Uh, there was significant discrimination that, that Native Americans um, say they're facing. Talk to us a little bit about that, Bob. So a, a critical issue is most of the debate in the United States, if people can't get to see a physician or, or a hospital, we attribute it they don't have the financial means to do it. And it turns out in this survey, there are people who feel that when they go, the way they're actually treated because of their background, discourages them from coming back. Uh, and that's what we found, uh, this considerable amount uh, of barriers for Native Americans, but not based on I don't have insurance coverage or I can use the Indian Health Service, but because the way people treat me, I don't want to go along. And that is really important. It's a different discussion than how my insurance deductible. It really is about how people see people who are waiting to, uh, uh, to be seen who have real problems. And that came out here, and it's very, very powerful. We're not saying it's your insurance. We're saying that people sought care, and they were really treated so disrespectfully based on their background, they just didn't come back. And the number was one in four that yes. said they experienced discrimination when going to a doctor. Michael, talk to us. You were uh, part of the Seattle Indian Health Board. Talk to us about your experiences there. Sure. Uh, so I've been at this, uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation for 13 years, but before that I did have a, another life. And I, I'm a family physician. I'm also a lawyer, but I'm a family physician. And I worked at this community health center in, in Seattle, um, Washington. And uh, the community health center is called the Seattle Indian Health Board. Uh, it's, in, it's designed exactly for this purpose, this trust issue, um, among other things. Um, it, it, it focuses on, and the, the physicians and the health professionals there see uh, urban uh, American Indians and Alaska Natives, um, folks who live in the Seattle King County area. So we created this clinic to um, make people feel at home, make people feel like they were part of a community, help them um, uh, either um, understand uh, and get in touch with their culture or uh, become part of a culture or help us create a culture for the, the clinic and within the, the King County community. And one of the, like for instance, one of the things we did was, uh, and I forget, it's been so long that I, I sometimes forget that we did this, but we had a traditional health liaison. And uh, the, the gentleman was, oh, I'm from Oklahoma originally, he was as well, uh, but he was Kiowa. And uh, uh, he, um, uh, he would actually take referrals from the, the healthcare professionals. So if I saw someone in the clinic and I, and I got a sense that this individual um, 
while we're, the person was seeing me for Western healthcare needs, but might also be interested in tradi more traditional um, healthcare um, um, conversation or um, intervention, I would I would go out and write a referral, um, uh, like I would to anyone else. Send it to Carl, call him up on the phone, and uh, we would have an intervention. Or he would invite me over. Or sometimes I would go out to um, folks' houses um, for a ceremony, things like that. So it was all part of a really rich, concerted, robust effort to make people feel at home. So let's talk more about uh, how health, um, improving health through cultural identity. Yvette, do you have some thoughts on that? Absolutely. I've seen so many examples of when tribes and American Indian, Alaska Native individuals are allowed to have input and partner and be a part of designing their health care. Being a part of helping structure how that healthcare should look like, um, there's definitely better results, and they're more satisfied with that. Many examples in health facilities. Um, one particular example I'd like to mention is the Special Diabetes Program for Indians. Mm -hmm. It's a congressional funding to prevent and treat diabetes uh, in American and Alaska Native communities. It's been going since 1998. This program started with the recommendation of tribes to allow local programs to tailor their programs to the local need and the local culture and traditions. And what that does is it helps make the care more relevant and makes it more welcoming and people are more likely to use it if it's in their frame and their context of how they live their lives and what they think would help them. And with diabetes, I mean a hundred years ago we didn't have diabetes because Back then, culturally, we knew how to prevent it. Now we're reclaiming that culture. And this, this, um, yeah, this, basically this program, after 15, 16 years of congressional funding that gave the resources and the staff to do the work and to allow for that cultural adaptation, has some of the best results of a health and public health program that we know. Um, the prevalence of diabetes in American and Alaska Native um, community served by the Indian Health Service has not risen for several years. It's a big impact. Um, as the, compared to the rest of the population where it to continues to, to grow. Absolutely. When you look at rates of the complications of diabetes, such as end-stage kidney disease, um, that has decreased faster in American Indians compared to other groups over this time period of this initiative. So there's something about the resources giving money for the staff to do these things, but there's a big part that the ability to adapt to the local culture and traditions and involve the community, I believe, is probably more of the reason that this is a successful program. Can you give me an example of how, for, for people who are watching, uh, how that would be different than diabetes prevention in another community, say the Latino community, for example? Absolutely. Well, let's say, um, someone says that you know you're overweight and you need to exercise more well sometimes it's difficult to do that um, in busy lives and many other priorities yet if you have the opportunity to participate in some traditional activities to learn about how lacrosse or running or other forms of activity um, were healthy for our people a hundred years ago, that might be more enticing. Similarly, diabetes education, 
um, that involves traditional concepts and traditional ways of thinking, you might be more likely to go to that class than to other classes. So there's some very creative work that's been done to help um, increase access to and have patients actually go and receive this care, and as a result, their outcomes are better. Mm -hmm. Stephanie? Well, I wonder if we could take a step back, and I, I'm thinking about something you said earlier about little culture and big culture. And when we talk about health disparities in America, often what we're talking about is individualized health care. And this notion of individuality or independence in culture is actually a very Western, middle-class, white way of being. And I think one of the problems is that it really sets us up to think that you individually need to change. Whereas many tribal people see themselves as parts of collective. And health is something where we, you know, we feel part of families. It's hard if you say you need to change how you eat, but we eat as families, we eat as a community. And so really, you know, some of that discrimination comes by way of individualism and the fact that, you know, we hold people individually accountable for their outcomes, but many of the outcomes are systemic, right? They're the result of the way that our identities are treated. You know, one of my favorite, um, and, and by that I mean it sarcastically, <laughs> um, comments that we hear in American society is, that native people, right, so let's take the mascot issue as an example, we have bigger problems in Indian country. We do, but at the heart of all those problems is our identity. And so there's no way that you begin to deal with the issues in society if you don't first protect who we are as tribal people. And so there's a real need to understand sort of both systemic and individual levels here and to really think about culture in a big way. Most doctors are not coming out of Indian country. And so many Native people have to go and meet with people who only get Hollywood's version of Natives, who don't have real contact, aren't getting the real story. We know that in education, 80, over 85% of what children learn in education is about Native people pre-1900. Mm. And so who we are as contemporary people is really absent. And healthcare, education, law, I mean, everywhere you turn, we are consistently being influenced by these bigger issues. Well, and I want to turn now to the law part, the, the tribal court system, the, the, the efforts that have been made to, to, to reduce the amount of discrimination and the, the mismatch between the, the majority uh, legal system and the, 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 the Native American legal systems. Can you talk more about that, Stephanie? Well, one thing, I mean, I actually think that right now in, in, in among tribes, it's a really interesting time because one thing is that over 90% of tribes have their own judicial system. Again, if we're talking about leveraging change, protecting our people, right, I mean, that is one step. But then we also know that when you're first developing, often what you do is you take the mainstream version and, and you try to carry it out better, and there are problems with that. But I I think more and more what we're seeing within tribes and tribal communities is this pulling back and saying, wait a minute, so how are we doing it different? How do we think about these issues differently? How do we start thinking about some of the historical cycles of whether it's abuse that came from the boarding schools or, you know, in, in many communities, if a child doesn't graduate from high school, they're at greater risk of suicide and depression. So how do we start thinking about this link in a different way to give people the opportunity to improve their life and not pass it down to the next generation? And so I think it's a really unique time in Indian country. We're having different kinds of conversations and really asking how can we use our judicial system 
in a different way to reduce recidivism, to really think about um, you know, whether people deserve to be put in prison or jail because they have a mental health issue. I mean, most people who do drugs, it, it, they're coping with something. And our people have a lot to cope with. So how are we rethinking those issues? Um, and then, of course, the VAWA gave Native people the right. So we think in the big picture. For, for our audience, VAWA being. Is Violence Against Women, um, or, yeah, Women Act. And one, in 2013, it was really the first time tribes had the opportunity to hold non-Natives accountable for um, assaults against Native women. And what people in America don't often know is that six in 10 women experience physical and sexual abuse in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. And so most at the hands of non-natives. And so what we were learning is that predators were coming to tribal communities because we didn't have the ability to hold them accountable. And so real change begins by acknowledging that. Um, also criminal and judicial system. A, a often unknown fact is that native people die at the hands of police at a higher rate than do any other group in America. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be in a who's a greater victim because it's wrong for everybody. But again, when we're omitted from the conversation, this violence is allowed to continue. I see. Does anyone want to add anything? Um, I want to go on to, to stereotypes. We talked a, a little bit about mascots. Um, talk to me more, if you would. Um, uh, Bob, we talked about, um, let's start with the data. Uh, the poll found that there was more discrimination in majority native areas. Um, why, why might this be? Um, Stephanie, Yvette, do you have thoughts on this? Well, you know, that's really interesting data and really re interesting results at NCAI. When we heard the results, we went, oh, interesting. You know, it was <laughs> like, wow, that's an interesting finding. And, um, you know, certainly, uh, I think as people look at the methods of the study, you, you can see how the questions were asked and you can see that it, it was more of a person's um, sort of definition of their own neighborhood and their own context. And so, and we were asking about more than just Native American communities. We were asking yeah. about all communities, whether you live in a predominantly Latino community or predominantly Af African-American. Absolutely. Right. So if someone is living in a predominantly Native American neighborhood or community versus not, what does that mean for the opportunity for discrimination? And um, I don't know the reason. I think there needs to be more research. But one, one hypothesis could be that perhaps if there are more of more American Indians and Alaska Natives, more, you have more opportunity to be viewed as a group and more opportunity to have discrimination and experiences that are unfair that can create tension between groups and that can result in unfair treatment as well. But really we don't know the reasons in the in the survey, but maybe it's just there's more opportunity with more people experiencing it because it is something that we all experience very frequently. I mean I think the survey just touches at the 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 level of um, experience. But I do know I've lived in areas where I've been the only Native American. I've lived in areas where I've been around, lived with many Native Americans, and I experienced discrimination in both. Um,
but I do think that the opportunity to discriminate against a group happens mm -hmm. when there's more people around. It's just a, it's the thought that needs further testing. Mm. Interesting, Stephanie. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely agree with you, Vet. I think that there are these issues that come up around schools, low expectations for kids, uncertainty, and how to talk to parents. Parents feel disempowered. I mean, I think there are a variety of issues and and a number of instances where they can come up. Now, this particular poll was really majority in um, rural communities. I think there are some not rural, but in in non-majority uh, tribally. Wh what was it called? Um, in but there was tr only two thirds were tribally enrolled, right? So who are those other third? Which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and then we see a larger portion. So I, I was trying to really think carefully about this. So about. Um, two-thirds were over 50 years of age. And so I think there are a number of places where it's really important for us to get more data and think more about how do we look maybe in, in some large cities and get the experiences of natives there. I was reading a, a report and one of the quotes that stuck out to me is that urban is not a kind of Indian, it's an experience, one that many native people have had. And I think as we think through that, right, there's a real need to understand more and more people who are going between what that looks like, people who live near a tribal community and spend a lot of time going back and forth. And, and what this really spoke to me about is how do, how do we get more data so mm -hmm. that we can really start to understand the nuances of that discrimination. But I do think a lot of it is probably systemic and where you see groups where they're easily identifiable, um, I certainly know my nephews often talked about how everywhere they went, because they were brown, the assumption was that they were going to be trouble. And so often there was more of a desire to control their bodies, not have them move, you know, put their hoods down. They couldn't chew gum. Like, it's like people were coming at them in a different way, and I think we need more data about that. And as a lot of the, the reporting in our series has shown that that continuous kind of stress takes its toll on people's yes. health. Uh, it lowers, uh, it raises infant mortality, increases maternal mortality, right. uh, all, all kinds of Joe, health just, effects. Uh, sure one point here, because across the groups there was an interest in if people live together, if it's somewhat different, you missed the obvious point. If you just took that bar out and said to me, a third of people said they were unfairly stopped or treated uh, by the police. I wouldn't care where they lived. Uh, a third are untreated right. by, uh, by the courts. Courts aren't yeah. supposed to, you're not supposed to have that sense. So we split this up geographically. I want to be very careful that we don't discuss who's in what neighborhood when you have a very large yes, number, right. uh, which uh, if you presented in a, a congressional testimony, you'd say, I need some sort of an outside review of this, whether or not the way they concentrate neighborhoods is interesting, but it's the big fact is what the number is, which is very, very large in people's lives. And if it was broader in the American community, people would have anger all the time across all kinds of groups. These are very large numbers in terms of the aggregate of people's experiences. All right, I want to turn to questions now. Lisa Merowitz is here. Um, Thanks, Joe. Thanks. We have a lot of questions in not too much time, so we'll just take a few and some from our studio audience, too. Uh, this is from Chief Wampameekin Wampatuck, who is the Mattachesett Tribal Delegate to the UNPFII, 
which is the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues. To combat discrimination within local states, what resources and initiatives are state agencies engaging in to include articles of both the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and the American Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples? And how are unrecognized tribes being included in these discussions and decisions which may affect them? Who wants to go with that one? We have one lawyer here right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know from Indian Health Service um, well, history I, you do. <laughs> one thing that I noticed that I really liked in Washington State was the fact that the state legislature is requiring American Indian Alaska Native history um, and education in, in schools very early on, and they're developing a curriculum. I don't know the status of it, um, but uh, it's it's the one thing that we're missing as kids grow up is an accurate portrayal of who American Indians and Alaska Natives are and the history that they've experienced and the um, strengths and challenges that they have. And it would be so great if rather than rely on other people's stereotypes to learn that we actually had um, education at a young age to tell the true story of American Indians and Alaska Natives and maybe that could help you know, nip some of the, uh, stop some of the misunderstanding as we grow older. And as we grow older, we tend to sort of segregate a bit. But when we're young, we're more willing to learn. We are at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation um, with some other funders um, supporting a project reclaiming native truth that gets at that sort of understanding what the baseline is and then and letting and helping native voices empower um, themselves to um, uh, reclaim that truth. and. Uh, um, so we're very hopeful about that. I guess, are you working on that as well? I am, yeah. Our research team, the, um, there are a couple of issues. Our research team has collected more than 12,000 non-natives and have really been looking at what is, what is the role of, for example, whiteness in, in how people want to view natives. So if you take the mascot issue, for example, um, why do people claim to it? Why do they feel like it's honoring? And the, by the way, the data does not support that perspective. Um, but the, you know, what is it about the romantic notion of natives that makes whites claim to this so strongly? And we really unpacked a lot. The, the Reclaiming Native Truths project is really important for thinking about how do we change that narrative. Exactly. And a couple of the big things that have come out that as we begin to play with the issues is that people don't have a lot of understanding. Um, and so we tested out five different narratives that people have or could have, like so ones that we could present them if we wanted to change the narrative. And overwhelmingly, the one that has the greatest effect is when people know more about systemic oppression of natives. And I think what it does for people is it sort of takes it out of the individual realm and really makes it about something that's happening to the group as opposed to right, something that native people are individually responsible for. But then it was interesting, we had a condition with positive where we talked about the ways in which tribes are leveraging change and we got the biggest backlash. I mean, people who accused us of racism against whites, I mean, people writing to us, posting on the website, um, you know, really calling us out as, you know, discriminating against white people for things they've never done. And, um, you know, just a, about a third of the people in that condition. And so then we're looking at who are these people and how do we begin to understand. But to really pull it back, like if we go back to the mascot issue, 
Whites have higher self-esteem when exposed to the mascot. Whites um, like other whites who wear the Indian mascot more. They like them more than if they wear the Fighting Irish t-shirt or if they have a plain t-shirt. They like the same guy more when he's got you know, a native on his shirt. Um, so there's something really interesting going on. And yet, when we look at it, people say that they feel more warmly towards natives. But this, it turns out that how warmly they feel towards their own group is actually inversely related to support for native policy change. So if I really feel good about being white, I really don't feel good about helping native people in any way, shape, or form. So there is much more that we need to unpack there. Very interesting. And thank you, because I was going to ask a question about mascots, and you answered it. So we'll take another one here. Um, do you find that Native Americans file complaints when discriminated against? I'm thinking of situations like housing, for example. I read an earlier study by HUD, I think, that pointed out that it's hard to assess situations like this because of the lack of complaints filed, but I'm wondering if that's really true. Who would like to answer I, that I one? I guess the question is, are complaints filed because there seems to be an impression that they aren't. Think about if you live in a world where you've seen people file complaints and then they don't get answered or things don't get resolved, um, where you've seen your communities with lack of resources and lack of opportunity and there's been requests for help and they've not been answered. Um, I think sometimes uh, it may seem futile to, uh, to, to make the complaint because of the systemic racism that people feel, uh, like I said, there's, there's people who feel this every single day of their lives, that they change their behavior, as you said, kids will do different things, uh, change their behavior to try to avoid it. So when it comes to the opportunity to complain about it, you have to believe that your complaint will be handled in a fair way, but if you're in the context of discrimination, which means a, a context of unfairness, of essential unfairness, then you might not believe it makes sense to file that complaint as well. And that's, that's a horrible circumstance that people don't have a voice to um, complain. I think you also have to be, understand that people might be unwilling to complain if they thought there might be retribution to themselves or their family or, or consequences for doing that. It depends on the community setting and all of that, all those dynamics. I want to get to more questions. We, I think we have time for just one more. Or? Yes, does anyone in the audience have uh, anything they would like to ask? Yes. Um, Hi, I am from a long distance. I've, I've um, supported Native youth that were suicidal, uh, especially in Pine Ridge Reservation. And I would like to ask either of you or both of you um, what you think we can collectively do, and obviously non-Native people as well, to get the issue of the epidemic of teen suicides and attempted suicides. It should be front and center of the American society, and it's just it ignored in the data, everything. Do you have any suggestions for that? That's a good question. <laughs> Well, it's it's heartbreaking. This is happening in our communities, and lots of Americans don't know about it. I think that there are challenges with talking about it because we want to be in a frame of not talking about it in a way that encourages more suicide, so there's an art to that. Um, but the stories of American Indian Alaska Native youth and how they overcome it 
uh, and the strengths that they find to do that and the successful programs that we have that help, those stories need to be told as well to help share the information. I think there's some communities doing some incredible things related to helping Native students learn more about their culture and learn more about resilience and learn more about what they can do if they have those experiences and have those thoughts and, and giving them options um, instead of giving them free time in the summer, there's a summer camp where there's a building built where they can go, a youth center where they can go. Youth have actually told us that they want more um, places to go where they can feel safe and they can participate in other activities and learn from their elders. And so there's, there's lots of um, strategies. We just need to talk about them more and try to get them more in the conversation. Absolutely. I mentioned a minute ago uh, the, our effort to capture stories of people using their culture, um, and some of them were from Indian country. Uh, we showed Anthony's path. There's another one, if you look online, for Charlie's path. We didn't show that one, but it's a gentleman from Fort Peck, and he, um, he created a program where he introduced at-risk um, uh, uh, Indian youth to uh, horses um, and, uh, um, and uh, 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 just con reconnected them with the the animal, with uh, you know how to ride, all of that, and uh, it's just, just a wonderful, beautiful story. Um, and and the, the suicide risk is tied in there as well. So I, I'd like to comment on that. Um, so there are a couple taking a bigger perspective. Often when we think about suicide, we think about the ways in which individuals' self continuity gets sort of dis disjointed from their cultural continuity. And so as, as tribal people, we often understand ourselves as part of a collective, but much of the language about suicide is very individual. And so one of the things that we've tried to do is to really push back against some of that, it, you know, it's you're in a black box, you, you know, this is an individual choice. It's not an individual choice. It's a choice that you make that impacts the entire community, changing that connection, but also recognizing the ways in which the systemic discrimination against Native people in schools and in other spaces where kids don't get to learn about their future self and don't get to learn about who they are as contemporary people we are creating that disjointedness. And so a big part of what we have to do is really get America to stand up and want to see us as contemporary people, to allow us to redefine ourselves, to allow us to have a voice in who we are and to not continue this frozen in time, vanishing Indian rhetoric, because it's not true. I mean, we, at, when you look at under age 25, natives are growing at a higher rate than any other group in America. And so, you know, we are here and we are functioning, but also to clinicians, you know, as we think about psychologists and how we get the, the news out there, you can't come to Indian country and talk about suicide as an individual choice because you make us feel more alone. And so some of it is whose responsibility is it to my own field. I mean, we've been trying to call out, if you look at the 40,000 papers on discrimination, less than a half of a percent even mention natives. Mm -hmm. And one-tenth of a percent actually have natives in some su substantial way. So we're a much higher part of the population, but we're not being studied. And people are not using science to help our communities. Lisa. I know we're running late. I just do want to ask one more question. Audience, <laughs> you can ask folks after the event. You're in charge some of your questions. <laughs>
Um, how do you, this is from Sarah Parker. She's in pediatric emergency medicine at Children's Hospital of Michigan. How do you think the high rate of discrimination reported when going to a doctor affects AIAN individuals seeking care for more sensitive topics such as mental health? Would training more AIAN health professionals reduce the stigma in seeking help? Just because we're on the mental health topic, I wanted to ask that AI question. AIAN, of course, being American Canadian, Indian and Alaska Native. Yeah. I think a part of it is training more American Indian and Alaska Native health professionals to have more people in the, in the mix that understand. But we can't stop there. We have to treat all of our health professionals to be respectful and, and to understand how to respectfully care for American Indians and Alaska Natives. I love the concept of cultural humility. Uh, it applies across culture. It's just basically as a clinician and a provider saying, I'm not going to make any stereotypes or assumptions about the next patient I'm going to see. I'm going to treat them like an individual and ask them what they need and learn about them. And as an individual, without making those assumptions that clinical providers often make, because we're trained to think in patterns. So uh, trying to get us out of potentially stereotyping and having implicit bias is really important training for all healthcare providers. Great. Thank you. I want to leave time now for each of you to give us one, uh, one policy takeaway from this discussion and from um, our, our findings on this poll. Um, I'll start with you, Bob. Uh, so uh, we have uh, a serious problem in the country, and it really re relates to the response here. The country is very, very polarized. A share of Americans believe what we discussed today are just individual incidents. It's not a broad pattern. This is going to exist unless we can find a way to routinely survey, I know it's more expensive, the views and experiences. Let's assume there was a hypothetical president who said something that some group would think inappropriate. The only way you would know how inappropriate they thought it was if the next morning on the news it said X, Y, uh, Native American community found this unbelievably offensive. But we don't have an ability, and so people watch uh, the news, and many reporters are stuck. If I agree with the government or not, I end up using a poll. Six out of four, blah, 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 uh, say this. Unless we can find a way to add this community so routinely, they're not only talking about their own lives, but the issues that the government does, you lose the whole media. You're there, I'm in a congressperson's office trying to convince them of something, but they don't have a pattern that they see. And they always say, oh, the organization just represents some small group. We really have to find a way, I know it's more expensive, it's harder than everything else, that the views of today's Native American community are on the front pages when people talk about how the country responds. Because there's a share of people who just believe, oh, there's a loud voice, but it's not very broad. And this is something, I know it's more expensive, but it has to be included in, in, in routine surveys. So there is a voice nationally from the community here. Thank you, Stephanie. You know, policy change is interesting because policy is a reflection of the culture. Um, I mean, just in the last year, we've seen how the culture and talking about discrimination has changed tremendously as people have felt more empowered to discuss their own hatred and dislike for other groups. So when I think about policy change, part of it is how do we infuse it into every part of the culture? So work to change ideas, you know, part of it, there's a 
um, corn tassel has a great um, everyday acts of resurgence. Um, I mean, if everyone who heard this talk today took one step in saying, I'm not, you know, in every situation, I'm not going to let Native people be invisible. And, you know, we start to think about what does that mean in psychology for clinicians? What do we need to do? I mean, it really is about changing the conversation and changing the narrative. And that requires a larger cultural shift in America. And so, you know, policies are a reflection of ideas. And so this conversation is a good start. We need to have many more of these conversations. Well, data is so important. It can determine whether communities get resources, funding, um, services. Um, it, it can mean the difference between life or death. And data is off, uh, funding is often driven by data. So we need more data, and we need more conversation about it. Um, I remember um, when I worked in the government, former secretary um, of HHS, Sylvia Burwell, said that um, Data helps us go from rhetoric to reality. The rhetoric is, oh, it's not so big of an issue. This data helps show that discrimination is occurring, and we have to talk about it. We have to address it, because people's lives are depending on us to be able to do that, all of us, to try to address discrimination in our, in our communities. So um, more data, more conversation. Michael? I think I want to circle back to the, the video with Anthony's path and the discussion about culture. Um, in that we were talking about uh, a sort of a, 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 an ease with this of with talking about culture and a sense of connection to place and um, and how important that is and sort of received wisdom that uh, tribes across North America have as a, as a resource as a treasure in many senses. And that we and 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 they could have almost lost it, and that the rest of us actually probably desperately need that connection, that same sense of connection to nature and place. I mean, we are sort of ironically as a as a race, as a humanity, uh, facing an existential challenge with climate change, for instance. And and you could you could argue that that is a result of our own generic um, disconnection from from nature and place. And so, all of humanity needs <laughs> needs that that reconnection. And uh, so, just for instance, um, and we need policy interventions to do that. So, uh, last year, last March, uh, the New, New Zealand New Zealand Parliament, for instance, granted uh, personhood to a river, the Hwanganui River. Um, and there will be sort of like we don't think anything of granting personhood to a corporation. That's that's nothing to us. But but they did this kind of radical thing of giving granting legal personhood to a river, and there are Maori uh, uh, custodians, guardians um, for the river. Um, it's just an interesting thought, you know, m may never work in the United States, but it's a radically different way and it might be the time for us all to be thinking about that from sort of um, re received indigenous w wisdom. Well, thank you all. Thanks for those ideas and comments. Uh, this concludes today's forum. I encourage everyone who's watching to continue the discussion online at the forum. Uh, website, and uh, that's forumhsph.org. Uh, on behalf of NPR, Harvard, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, thank you. This has been a production of the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.